environmental, conversations, on creative arts, scholarship, and teaching. This This is is Ecocast. Ecocast. Hello and welcome to Ecocast, the official podcast of the Association for the Study of Literature and the Environment. I'm Lindsay Jolivet. And I am Brandon Golm. And thank you for joining us for another episode. Today, we're very excited to have Tom Van Duren joining us to talk about the incredible world of snails. Tom is Deputy Director at the Sydney Environment Institute and an Associate Professor in the School of Humanities at the University of Sydney, and a Professor Second in the Oslo School of Environmental Humanities at the University of Oslo. His research and writing focus on some of the many philosophical, ethical, cultural, and political issues that arise in the context of species extinctions and human entanglements with threatened species and places. He is the author of Flightways, Life and Loss at the Edge of Extinction, The Wake of Crows, Living and Dying in Shared Worlds, and today's topic, A World in a Shell, Snail Stories for a Time of Extinctions. He lives in the Blue Mountains, just west of Sydney, on the ancestral unceded lands of the Darug and Gundungurra people. Welcome, Tom. We're so happy to have you. Thanks so much, Lindsay. Uh, it's great to be here with you and Brandon today and, and to have a chance to talk about the snails. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm excited. We, we were we were kind of, ch- Lindsay and I were chatting before you, you hopped on, and um, I, I think snails are adorable. And uh, in terms of like, I, <laughs> I, I will be the first to admit that creepy crawly things are, are not my, my forte, but uh, if I had to pick one, I guess snails, snails all the way. So excited to, <laughs> to, to learn some more about them. That's good. great to hear. <laughs> snails all the way. So I'm going to start us today with um, some folklore about snails. So imagine you're a farmer, specifically in Korea or Japan, and you go out every day to work in your rice paddy. And this is, you know, a difficult life. Maybe you have some troubles, you want a child, but you haven't been able to have one, or you're a lonely man who hasn't been able to find a wife and you go to work in your paddy field and you're thinking about these troubles when you look down and see a snail. As you look closer at the snail, the snail starts speaking to you <laughs> and it turns out this little snail wants to join your life in the role of the person that you're missing. So both uh, Japan and Korea have a lot of snail folklore about snail sons or snail wives. And it's a way these sort of snails join human society. In terms of the human aspect, they tend to be folk stories that are responding to the social needs of a community. As I said, you're childless or too poor to pay for a dowry for marriage. And a magical snail comes into your life and brings fortune to you. So that's a little snail folklore today. Before we hopefully get into more, because I know Tom talks a lot about snail folklore. So Tom, if you could first just introduce us to your book project and the manuscript and snails and what this piece of work looks like. Yeah, thank you so much. So, Well, the book's about the the incredible disappearing land snails of Hawaii. Um, So at at the broadest level, it's really an effort to think about or to think with snails uh, and their stories about this time of environmental loss and transformation. And so to ask what snails and these snails in Hawaii in particular might have to teach us about extinction, about what extinction means and why it matters. And that's a theme that's 
you know, found that I've been exploring in a range of different ways in other books too. Um, but this book was really my first effort to bring those questions to a popular audience um, and to take them in some slightly different directions, prompted in particular by thinking with snails and by thinking in Hawaii. And I can say more about that, but there are, there are a couple of sort of key things I was trying to do with the book to, in terms of redirecting or expanding that extinction conversation but in a nutshell or in a snail shell mate, um, that's that's what the book was was trying to do nice awesome so can you talk a little bit about um you know you know what is a snail story what you know what kinds of things were you looking at examining um you know were these more you know, kind of formal stories or were they more like similar to what Lindsay does, like a, kind of a folklore and a oral storytelling? So yeah, just some examples of that would be great. Yeah. Um, well, I guess first and foremost, my uh, they're, they're sort of my stories um, from traveling around in Hawaii, talking to people and, and observing and, and all those sorts of things, reading all of the good things we do in the humanities. But I, um, I guess the way I've thought about storytelling in a lot of my work is to think about it as a kind of layering together of multiplicity and complexity. And so as much as possible, um, my stories are an effort to think with others' stories, whether those are Indigenous people, Kanaka Maoli in Hawaii, uh, or uh, scientists or activists or others who are sort of drawn into the snail story in one way or another. And and what um, really captured me about this particular site for thinking, I guess, is is that it was just such um, a fascinating and important place for asking questions about disappearing species. And, and partly because, so I guess it's important to know that Hawaii was once one of the um, most, or had one of the most diverse assemblages of snails anywhere on the planet. So there were at least 750 species, but probably many, many more that haven't been described. So that, that's, to put that in some sort of context, that's two-thirds the number of snail species, land snail species, that can be found in the whole of North America, which is obviously you know, a much mm. bigger landmass. Um, so Hawaii was a place of incredible snail richness, but the majority of that is now gone of those species. And so that was really my entry point to think about how did all these snails get here? Um, what does it mean to be a land of snails? How, mm-hmm. how have snails woven themselves or been into the landscape, into the lives of people? Um, and then what does it mean that those relationships are now breaking down? It's incredible. I think that you do an amazing job of weaving your own stories with the sort of scientific stories, with the Hawaiian stories that they also tell about snails, which, of course, I was interested in because I like folklore, clearly, since I do the the bit on it in this podcast. But they have some incredible folklore or you'd say maybe folk spiritual connections to snails that you talk about. Yeah, yeah. No, the, the 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 stories of Kanaka Maoli about snails and the relationships of Kanaka folks with snails are are a, a big theme of the book. I'm not uh, native Hawaiian. You can probably tell from my accent, <laughs> apart from anything else. Um, and uh, so, you know, they're not they're not my stories to tell, and I don't um, I don't tell um, really Kanaka stories about snails in the book. Um, but I, I mention some of the main themes because I think it's really important to to presence those relationships and part of the ways in which those relationships take form are through these stories, through um, stories, chants, songs, uh, other kinds of 
traditions. Um, so if one of the biggest themes for, um, for Kanaka Maoli is around the snails is that the snails sing in the forest. And so this is a, a theme that pops up again and again in stories. Uh, and they don't just sing at any old time, importantly, they're, they're important um, uh, omens or signs in, in stories. And they often sing right at the, uh, sort of at the end as things are beginning to resolve, as the world uh, is starting to settle back down as it should be. Um, when everything is pono in Hawaii, when it's all um, balanced and good and righteous again. So they have that really important um, role in, in Hawaiian stories and culture. Um, and they often accompany also forest goddesses. And, and so, again, um, having this really important sort of um, role as an omen and a sign. So that was one of the themes I wanted to explore in the book. What does it mean to to live in a world of singing snails, especially as those snails disappear? And that's that's part of what's going on. Um, but I, I also wanted to to explore in um, in a fuller way what how the snails are woven up in woven into processes of, of colonization. Uh, and, and in some ways, the, the breakdown of Kanaka relationships with land and place as, as these lands were colonised and militarised and so on. But also, and really crucially, I think, the way snails have um, more recently been allies in struggles for land and culture and, and the way in which snails are now woven into what's often talked about in the islands as a kind of uh, renaissance of Hawaiian culture and language mm. and, and more. So the, the snails have a range of different roles there and, and I was, mm-hmm. was trying to sort of slow down. I'll try not to make too many puns, to slow down with some of those um, oh, no, This is a, a pun-heavy podcast, so please. Yeah. <laughs> yes, Brandon, Brandon loves puns. That's, yeah, but your, your chapter, you have a whole chapter on colonialism and the colonial connections, which is incredibly well considered and I think for me personally I really like your dedication to the material sort of material aspect of that the collection of the snail shells the the lays of snail shells I think those are things that I had never thought about even though I I have like visited the Hawaii like the University of Hawaii Manoa I've been to several times for conferences and things but it never crossed my mind what for example the lays were actually made of yeah. Like yeah, no, I think I th- you know, you're not on your own there in that, that mm-hmm. ma- most people go to Hawaii and and never hear or think about snails. Um and that's mm-hmm. and I did it I did it myself for a very long time going there and, and especially writing and thinking about birds and mm-hmm. and so I was working on on biodiversity issues in Hawaii and the snails never came up and that when you know when I realized that there was this whole other um Taxa, and it's not just the snails and the birds. The plants in Hawaii are incredibly diverse. The crickets, the, there's all sorts of, of diversity, but really the birds are the ones that everyone um, knows and thinks about if they know anything about conservation in Hawaii at all. And these invertebrate stories sort of get left out of it. But maybe that's a, taking us in a different tangent. The the, <laughs> the most most lay in Hawaii are not um, not made from um, from land snail shells, but from seashells. Um, and partly, well, partly today it would be because there are not very many land snails left and they're protected. Um, but in the past, too, um, it's thought that the lay were uh, of land snail shells were probably predominantly worn by women of, of very high status. And so the only one that's that's left in the Bishop Museum in Honolulu belonged to Queen Liliokalani. Um, and it is a, a beautiful lay that, as you say, I, I mentioned in the book, um, but I, in that chapter, I, I did really want to slow down with um, with <laughs> snail collecting um, and the 
snail shell collecting, which really kicks off in the 1820s, well, in the 1850s, but in the 1820s, um, Christian missionaries arrived in the islands. Um, and it was really the, the missionary sons who took to snail shell collecting with a real fervour. Um, that's described at the time as a kind of land shell fever that was sweeping through the islands. And, and people from the historical accounts seem to have just been really caught up in it and really excited by spending, you know, days or, or, or longer out in the forest collecting snails. On a, They would go on excursions to do it with others and it was a big activity for the scouts when the Boy Scouts got started in the islands. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to think about um, snail shell collecting uh, as it was tied into this uh, colonial project um, as a what the historian of science Libby Robin has called the sciences of settling. So d- the way in which different kind of scientific practices help to settle people in other people's mm-hmm. lands, and and that's so that's really what um, I wanted to try and tease out there, and, and not because the snails are particularly important characters in the history of colonization. I don't think they are in, in Hawaii. Um, I think there's you know, much bigger um, non-human actors uh, mm-hmm. in those stories like pineapples, for example, mm-hmm. and, and the huge pineapple mm-hmm. plantations and the cattle that were brought into the islands and uh, and the industries established around them, which destroyed Hawaiian forest, including snail habitat. So, so But I wanted to think about what the role of the snails might have been and to, um, to try and add that thread to the kind of multi-species story of of the colonial displacement uh, of Kanaka Maoli. And so shell collecting becomes, for me, the the main way of drawing out that that history and thinking in particular about how efforts to rename the island's diversity, um, the snails themselves, but also the places where people were going to collect these shells um, all got Hawaiian names, so all got sorry non-Hawaiian names. You know, some of them from Greek mm-hmm. myths and and so mm. on. And so this new way of naming and knowing um, gets layered over the land. And the snails are just one part of that. But I pull out some of the the well, one particularly powerful example for me was this snail Acatonella doli. And doli is is for uh, S B doll, um, who probably the name doll is familiar to to most people in America from <laughs> it being on your pineapples. Um, and 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 that is the family, um, the Dole family uh, that he belonged to, uh, that were a huge and a pineapple family and and more in, in the Hawaiian Islands. But Dole, in this case, was the first president of the Republic of uh, Hawaii. Uh, and so the snail, when it was named um, for him, was named in honour of his role as, as the president of the Republic, which... Um, for those who, who haven't um, dived at all into Hawaiian history, um, the Republic is uh, what replaced the, the the monarchy after the Queen and the Parliament of Hawaii were overthrown by well by wealthy settlers with a lot of help and support from the U.S. military. And so there was this short period of a republic until um, Hawaii became a territory and then a state of the United States. So the, the snails are sort of tangled up there, and mm-hmm. um, and the ways in which they come to be named, are, I think. Uh, emblematic of a larger project of of recategorizing and renaming this place so that people can sort of settle in and become comfortable um, in uh, what is, you know, a a stolen land. So I wanted to tell that story um, (laughs) um, as part of the the snail story. Yeah, I I really like this. um, You've kind of mentioned it uh, throughout of, of you know that that people really don't think much about snails, or it's it's not like a, a it's not a foregrounded species. A lot of times when we when we think about these different things, and I, I like 
it's I like that. It's an interesting <laughs> connection, um, you know, when thinking about this. You know, it's 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 an unfortunate thread that kind of runs through all of environmental humanities and stuff like that of of groups of organisms of things being silenced or um, kind of uh, not being paid attention to, even though they're kind of you know, maybe we don't know how to listen or best listen to those things. Um, so I really like that, that kind of idea that's, that's kind of being, you know, brought out through your work and, and through this conversation today. And so I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that as well as, you know, what it is, why is it that you think snails are, um, you know, when there's, I mean, there, you, you, as you said, there's, I mean, innumerable, you know, numbers of species. And you'd think that that sheer number would give it more attention, but it's something that, you know, we don't really think about. And so um, I'm curious, you know, what, what maybe leads to that and, and how that maybe also connects to this idea of colonialism or um, other, other ideas that get denied. Mm, yeah. Well, that was definitely one of the big questions for me in writing this book in moving from having spent so long thinking about birds to thinking about snails um, a big part of why I wanted to do that although I don't know that I was fully aware of it at the time often these things are discovered <laughs> afterwards um, was th this this realization that I had that I really had neglected the invertebrate world uh, which is 99% of the animal kingdom in terms mm -hmm. of the number of species and and so what began to become clear to me, um, as is to anyone who starts to think about invertebrates, is this incredible bias um, in which takes so many different forms, but it's 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 about you know this, the number of species we've described by or scientists have described, whether we know anything about those species, whether we care about the fact that they're disappearing, is there's different ways in which this bias takes form. But really I think the, the key thing for me was was coming to appreciate that there's this unknown extinction crisis is how I talk about it in the book, that you know, for every species of mammal or bird that we can name that disappears or has disappeared, probably another 100 invertebrates have disappeared. Um, mm. So there is this huge crisis of, um, of in loss of invertebrates going on around us, and yet probably most of us can only name a couple of, of invertebrate species that are extinct at best. And, and so there's this sort of quiet, relentless process of loss that's ticking on. Um, and so I wanted to, to try and presence that uh, through the snails, but also to think about what challenges it raises for storytelling, for care, for conservation. In a way, we can't hope to to name, let alone meaningfully know in some way, the richness of the world before it disappears. Uh, I mean, mm. and and I'm I, it's not lost on me that you know that that naming, and this is one of the things that comes out a bit in the book, that naming takes many different forms. Here, we've just been talking about it as a kind of colonising project, mm -hmm. uh, and yet in another way, um, to not even have named the the invertebrates for science, not to have named them, and for them to be disappearing is for them to be rendered invisible in a whole lot mm -hmm. of of other ways, and of course traditional um, ways of naming and categorizing the world by um, Indigenous peoples, including Kanakamali, don't line up neatly with, with those of taxonomy. There are different things going on in those processes, but attending to the complexity of the world and its diversity, especially as it disappears, seems vitally important. So I am also trying to hold on to these questions about whose ways of knowing and naming and categorizing come to matter. But I still think there's something vitally important in the fact that with a best estimate, about 80% of the world's plants and animals haven't been uh, described by science. Um, and the vast majority of those invertebrates that have been described by science 
have have um, not been studied in any meaningful way. An awful lot of them, we don't know how many, have probably only been the subject of one scientific paper, the one that did name them, uh, and then no one mm-hmm. went back to ask anything <laughs> else. Um, and so, so even if we do were to know that they were endangered in some way, which we don't usually, we don't have any information about how, how they live, what they need, how they reproduce. What the, this process of um, of not knowing um, is, which weaves its way into the book in a range of different ways. This uncertainty and mystery, and which is particularly strong with invertebrates um, for a whole range of different reasons, is is something I wanted to to try and grapple with. As I said, to make visible in a way, but also to think about the limits of visibility um, and and how our care might need to learn to work um, into the unknown in in complicated ways. That the solution here is not. You know, a whole new category of charismatic microfauna um, to go alongside <laughs> the, the, some of the mammals and the birds, um, but instead that really if we take seriously the, the sheer numbers, it's just not possible for us to conserve the, the diversity that's disappearing in the world in that way. We need to learn to care and story differently into these spaces of uh, of incredible diversity and ultimately unknowability. So that's, I guess, the first part of your question. There's a snail-specific element to that that I won't <laughs> spend too long on, but just to say that, yes, I think it is within that broad invertebrate bias, there is definitely a particular snail challenge. Uh, I think we're starting to see uh, some invertebrates like the bees be storied mm. differently in ways mm. that open up avenues for care. It's an uphill battle for, for many of those species. And so one of the other things I wanted to explore in the book is what are the gra- what are the ways, the reasons why we ought to care that these snails are disappearing. And I think those are many. And that's uh, in this book, I'm really trying to draw out the entangled significance of extinction uh, is what Deborah Bird Rose and I uh, called it in some of our earlier work, which which thinks about why these species matter in a way that uh, tries to layer over one another many different arguments about how they they matter in and of themselves, how they matter to others, to ecosystems, to knowledge making projects, to cultural tradition, traditional practices, um, and to, to to thicken our sense of who is here and why they matter. So, so that's a, another thing that's going on in this book that I've tried to do in earlier work too. But most of my past work has has jumped around a lot, multiple case studies in a single mm. book, um, and really with by staying with the snails. Uh, in Hawaii um, for a whole book, I, I guess I had an opportunity to to spend a chapter really on on each of those different forms of of entangled significance, and that's part of the structure of the book, which I think is probably you know, not obvious to anyone except me, who spent way too much time thinking about it. Is that that each of the chapters of the book explores a different kind of mattering, if you like, mm-hmm. of the snails, uh, and it's situated in a different site. Uh, and um, it's at the same time exploring a different threat to, and that's not applied uh, 100%, but by and large, that's how the structure of the book works. Mm-hmm. You mentioned the, you mentioned seeing, and I'm just going to grab onto it because I learned a great deal about snails um, from your book. And so I would love if you could talk a little bit about being a snail and how we can learn to put ourselves in the position, this position of the snail mattering for the snail. Um, Because I think, for example, like they don't see like humans see, which I thought was fascinating. And so how, how did you feel like writing this book helped you make some new, mm, I don't know, pathways of learning to appreciate snails on their own terms? 
Yeah, it, in big ways. And I, I realise whenever I talk about the book, it sounds like it's a real hodgepodge of stale facts. There's sort of there's colonialism <laughs> in there and militarism, and now we're going to go off on a kind of science nerd um, path. But but I, I am a I'm a biology nerd, and and I one of the bits I enjoyed most about this book was talking to behavioural biologists working on snails in labs and studying snail cognition and learning and memory and behaviour. And so I learned a lot. I guess is the short answer. And, and and as you say, snails don't see, although they have these kind of eye-like bulges on the, the top of their superior tentacles. So, so many people, I think, assume they see, but they their primary sense is chemoreception. And so they smell tasting the world, and they have a which they actually do use those uh, tentacles for. And they have a really fascinating relationship with slime in that's sort of in that mix of the things that they are they're tasting or smelling in the world. One of them is their own and other snails' slime trails. And they're picking up and reading meanings out of those slime trails, learning um, probably down to the level of who that individual snail was who laid that down and whether or not they're a good one to follow for one reason or another. But they're also learning about new foods. Some of the studies have shown that they can learn a new food source, a new scent is a reliable indicator of food and follow that. Um, and they're also experiencing different forms of social relationships so some studies on social isolation and and overcrowding of snails have shown that they uh, are aware of those things and it impacts on their um, their metabolically and psychologically it impacts on capacities to form memories and to um, to grow their shells so they have in the, are in their own ways in these remarkable um, experiential social worlds that I don't think we can get into um and i'm not i don't in the book mm -hmm. try to get into them um but i do try to to give sort of glimpses if you like of um and thinking with the kind of the umwelt and the mm -hmm. uh, work of of jacob von school who, mm -hmm. who who probably many of your listeners know thinks about the the life well that's shorthanded as as life worlds but um but really the the kinds of um, worlds of meaning that that's not, that are, that all species inhabit that are different based on their particular sensory apparatus and their cognitive capacities. So I try to to flesh that out a bit and to think about how snails get on in the world. As I said, not to to get into them their world, but in a way to to see what those glimpses might allow us to do in terms of appreciating their radical difference and even incomprehensibility to us. So so that, as I was mentioning a moment ago, is, is for me a big a, a part of coming at these questions of appreciation, appreciating snails on their own terms as one of the layers of their entangled significance, of one of one of the reasons why they matter. Um, that there are these they are these beings with their own distinctive ways of life. Um, and I think the individuals matter too, and we should think about you know, how we appreciate the life of an individual snail that we might too readily squash in the garden. But a, but a big part of what I wanted to do in the book is to think about these, these unique ways of life that are, by and large, uh, the kind of species-specific ways of life for snails uh, and to try to, uh, to appreciate them uh, on their own terms as part of what is being lost with extinction. We're losing these um, distinctive modes of being in the world and the world is made poorer for the fact that, that there is no longer this way of sensing, this way of uh, reading slime, this way of getting about and making meaning. Um, that's part of, of the story of what's lost here. Yeah. And, and I, I mean, not to just keep 
bringing things kind of back into these full <laughs> circles, but I, well, you know, it's a, a nice uh, snail shell, a nice Fibonacci <laughs> loop here. Um, but uh, you know, um, as you were talking there, I, I'm just thinking about like um, a lot of the conversations and and uh, emphasis being placed on like indigenous science and indigenous ways of thinking right now. That like these are things that have been kind of ignored and lost for for long periods of time. But there's a lot of value in exploring those those. Um, ways of thought and those ways of thinking and ways of being in the world that have been um, overlooked or squashed in many ways. I mean, not to use another bad bud <laughs> bug metaphor, <laughs> but um, right that, that like they've been right. kind of pressed down and um, and I think that it's it's we're seeing a lot. Of, I, I like that we're having these conversations now and um, thinking that they're you know acknowledging that there are other ways of being beyond what we've kind of historically just assumed is, you know, quote unquote, the right way or the, the only way or something. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. And I think that, I mean, that's one of the, that's happening in multiple different ways. And some of that work is happening across cultures. Some of it is happening across species. Some of it's trying to, to bring all of those things together and, and tend to them, not as, as you're saying, not, not as um, worldviews, if you like, that are layered still over a single reality, but, but as, as a more kind of a richer uh, conversation between different worlds. And that's definitely, that literature and those discussions is definitely part of what I'm trying to contribute to and to think with in this book, um, those kind of multiple ontologies. Um, mm. And uh, and that's, uh, but I th- yeah, I think that's part of, definitely part of what's going on here. And, and then well, uh, thinking, using the term that Mario Blasa and Marisol Della Cardena used to call about ontological politics, to, to ask about how those worlds come together, who, who wins and who loses, which worlds do still try to squash other worlds um, or to make the ways of seeing and relating and valuing uh, in those other worlds less legitimate or less. Uh, and again, that happens across cultural and species lines. Mm-hmm. Um, and so part of the commitment, I think, to, to good storytelling uh, in extinction studies and other fields is, is around holding that multiplicity together, but, n- but in a way that navigates through it in a meaningful way. Um, so as not just to, to make a mess, because I think there is a, there's a way of dealing with the multiplicity of worlds that just sort of throws them into a, mm-hmm. to a, a basket and says, here, look at all this great stuff, but doesn't do the, the work of seeing, you know, how some of that stuff is really not compatible with some of that other stuff. And some of it is, mm-hmm. has grown out of the suppression of the other bits. And, the, mm-hmm. um, and so it, it can't just be about a, a gathering together of multiplicity. It's, there's much more careful political work needed. And then a lot of that work is the work of good storytelling, I think. And it's not always visible, I think, because you know, that's another nice thing about good storytelling is you're not always being hit over the head by the fact that you know, this is how I'm telling you this story. <laughs> this, is what's, this is what I'm telling you this bit before this bit or this is why mm-hmm. I'm doing. Um, so a lot of it is is more performative and more um, subtler. Uh, and I, I really enjoy that challenge as a writer, but it's, and as a storyteller, but I think it is also a really important political and ethical work that's that's going on there. Before we start heading towards the end, can you tell me if you have a favorite snail? Yeah. <laughs> there are so many and they all seem incredible and unique and ground snails versus tree climbing snails. All There's all these as we've used the word multiplicity of this like world of snails, but you know, to says, as you say, acknowledge the one specific snail life importance. Mm. Do you have a favorite snail? 
I, I don't have a favorite, but I have one I'd love to tell you about, which, oh, which is that'd um, be great. <laughs> which is um, Laminella sanguinea, um, and it's it's one of those ground snails, a, a detritivore, so it eats decomposing leaves and and helps to recycle them back into the soil. What re- I found most fascinating about it is that if you encounter it in the in the forest, which you'd have to be very lucky to do these days, it's covered in a in a kind of crusty layer of its own brown. Um, excrement it turns out to be that it secretes and covers its own shell and if you but if you go looking for photos of those shells where where people have washed them uh, and not necessarily killed them thankfully um there Mm. are some nice photos of them getting around in clean shells they have these incredible lightning bolt patterns on their shells red these beautiful red shells but they cover them uh, and we don't know why they cover them um and um there's different theories about thermoregulation or about predation or but none of them are particularly good explanations mm-hmm. for why they do this and yet they do it and for me I think this is a it's a lovely reminder that, that the diversity of snails is not all just like the same critters with different packaging which I think is how we often tend to think about snails especially mm-hmm. once we start to see these wonderful shells of different shapes and sizes and things that they've just got yeah different packaging but it's the same slimy product on the inside <laughs> um but the, these guys the the laminella sanguinea remind us that you know that that isn't the case, that this is a distinctive Mm -hmm. way of life, that we don't understand why they do this, but they do this weird thing. And so Mm -hmm. I I take them as a really nice, um, not only a beautiful snail, but a reminder of the distinctive ways of life that are at stake here. Well, that is, that's wonderful. It's been, it's been, uh, it's been a great episode. I've really enjoyed (laughs) chatting about snails Mm -hmm. and, and hearing all this great um, these great connections again, that like, like you said, the, the, I, really the whole purpose of your book, right. Is, is getting us to think beyond, um, you know, this thing that's often ignored and it's given me a lot to think about. So, uh, it's, it's been great, but, uh, it is time to move to end on a roll. So, uh, I've got my 12 sided die here. I'm going to give it a toss and whichever number comes up, that's the question that we're going to ask you. So today we have number nine. Uh, all right. If you could only recommend one thing to someone starting out in the environmental humanities, what would that be? Uh, so that could be a book to read or just general advice on something they should do or, yeah. I'm going to plug my my good friend, before, um, Deborah Bird-Rose, who passed away a few years ago. Um, she was, for, for me, well, she was my primary PhD supervisor, but she was also a, a great mentor. Um, and she was really the person who drew me into the environmental humanities. And I think she, her work remains a touchstone for me of the, the what I think of as the best kind of interdisciplinary environmental thinking that is committed and ethical, that's, that's uh, interdisciplinary and deeply creative, that's beautifully written uh, and challenging um, and, and trying to hold together the multiplicity in the world in a responsible way. And she wrote many things, but for me, my favourite book of hers was is Wild Dog Dreaming. So that's the book I would would turn to or, and frequently do recommend to people who want to sort of dive into Debbie's work. Okay, awesome. Yeah, I'll, ma- I'll make sure to put that in the show mm-hmm. notes so that people can find it pretty easily. Yes, thank Great. you so much. We'll include that. And speaking of finding things, how can people find out more about you and your work? Uh, do you have social media, website, anything like that that you like to have people find you at? Yeah, the best place is is the web. My website, which is just tomvandoren.org. Um, I'm not a good social media user, so that's not a, <laughs> a place to find me. But I try and keep the the website relatively updated with with new posts on things I'm up to. 
Okay, great. We'll include that in the show notes as well. Thank you yeah, so much. Definitely. Yeah. Thanks well, thanks much. again for, for being here. This is, again, it's been a, a really, really great uh, pleasure to, to have you and talk to, to you about this. Thanks so much for having me. It was really nice to meet you both virtually. And um, yeah. Yeah, thank you for the, for the great podcast and please keep it up. Yeah, awesome. Uh, so, and thank you all for listening. This has been another episode of Asley Ecocast. If you've got an idea for an episode, either you want to feature your work or there's someone you would like for us to reach out to to have on the show, uh, you can find us on Twitter at Asley underscore Ecocast. That Twitter page also has uh, our link tree on there, which has uh, all of our contact information, including the Google form that you can use to fill out and submit proposals. You can also email us directly at asley.ecocast at gmail.com. If you enjoy listening to Ecocast, you can help us reach a larger audience by liking, sharing, and tweeting about today's show. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.